Hello, I am here today with the fabulous Carrie Kirpin. Um, Carrie is the co-founder and CEO of Likeable Media, a digital agency that was named Crane's sixth best place to work in New York City. A serious accomplishment in this city. In recognition of her work championing change in the advertising industry, Carrie was honored by the inaugural campaign U.S. Female Frontier Awards. She is also the author of Work It, Secrets for Success from the Boldest Women in Business. Um, and a little side note there, I'm happy to say that over again because I was one of the people interviewed in it. So I will say it again. Work It, Secrets for Success from the Boldest Women in Business. She's also a com columnist for Inc. and Forbes. Um, and she's been featured all over the place in New York, the New York Times, ABC World News Tonight, Fox News and CNBC. And she's keynoted conferences literally all over the world in all the major markets. Um, and she is in and of herself a powerhouse and just a huge agent, not only for women in business, but I think um, I think small businesses in general. She and her husband, Dave, have done a ton of work together. And it's uh, I promise this is going to be a fascinating podcast because she has lived an extraordinary life. So thank you for being here, Carrie. Thank you so much, Julian. As you know, I'm a huge fan of yours <laughs> and thrilled to be on the podcast today. Thank you. Well, this is fun. So as as you know, this is a passion project, and my goal is to try to get people's backstories because all that I just read is typically what people see, but there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. And um, I I think your history, your how you grew up and those things that happened to you are fascinating. So tell me a little bit about your childhood. Where were you Where are you from? What's your family like? So I grew up in Queens, New York. Um, New in York. An, in, it was a, an incredible experience. It's Queens is the most diverse county in the world. And so I, I grew up in a uh, thriving, diverse, urban atmosphere and loved it. I had um, two parents who were government employees. My dad was a judge and my mom worked for um, the Board of Ed and for special education. And I, um, so I'm not exactly sure where I got my entrepreneurial bug because <laughs> they were not risk takers, but grew up in an awesome, in Queens, working class, great. Interesting. Yep. So you had these like, to your point, but very conservative, but it, I have to believe that, you know, we're similar age, but growing up in New York. Yes. You know, even though your parents might have been more conservative, you they can't were help. risk averse. My parents were risk averse, mm -hmm. but they always encouraged me and believed in me. And so when I was in New York and watching, you know, all of this incredible, I remember when I was a kid, I used to watch like um, Secrets of My Success or Working Girl or <laughs> right. any of those things. Right. And that's totally what I identified with. Like yeah. the kid who wasn't expected to necessarily thrive in business who really wanted to. Right. And so being a, I was a, look, I was a Midwest kid. So yeah. I lived in the you know, it, not necessarily idyllic, but the, what you kind of yes. envisioned, yes. you know, the neighborhoods and yes. the, your neighborhood, far different than what I grew up in. And I have to imagine that being a city kid, you learned to be independent. So to your point, yes, yes. you know, Took not the subway at 11 years old, um, used to, to school, used to, um, you know, the, the 
streets were the playground and mm. it was a very New York City experience, but a borough experience. So it wasn't like a like a fancy New York City. There was no um, private school or any of the things you see in like in Manhattan. It's like a different world in the boroughs. The boroughs is like a real gritty New York experience, which yeah. I loved. Yeah. Is it like Welcome Back, Cotter? That's it's what totally like Welcome Back, Cotter. <laughs> Welcome Back, Cotter is actually based on Hunter High School, which is where uh, my husband went to school. Oh, you're kidding. No. Yeah, it was exactly, actually, it's exactly like what was So as a kid from the Midwest. Yes, Mr. Carter. It was yes, that. Laverne totally. and Shirley. Like, yes. These were the. Yes. That yeah. was my experience. These Welcome are back, Cotter. That's hysterical. So, um, you know, I, 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 I've talked about the fact that I, I always think that there's these, you know, holy shit moments yes. that happen or hoshimos. I'm yes. I'm trying to shorten it. Is um, that happened to people that basically form either who they are or inform their careers, their life, et cetera. You had a very interesting one at a very young age, sort of linking into that independence thing. Will you share a little bit about what happened to you when you were 14? I will. Um, I was 14 years old, and I woke up in the morning with horrible, horrible stomach pains, like awful, awful. And my mom took me to, like, what the equivalent of like an urgy care or, you know, one of these places. And they were like, oh, it's gastritis. She basically just has a bad stomachache. And I came back home and I was like, "Mm, I don't think I have a bad stomachache. I think something's really wrong. And it it kept going. My parents um, sort of were like, really? Are you sure you need to go to the hospital? And I was like, no, I need to go to the hospital. And so they they took me to the hospital. They were concerned, but not not really. But I was at 14. Uh, and I went and they did, you know, a variety of exams. And then they said, you know, we really can't find what's wrong, but you seem to be in a lot of pain. We're going to give you two options. You can wait. We don't have an available CAT scan. It'll be about four hours or we can do exploratory surgery. It doesn't appear to be your appendix. We're not sure. Um, but we can just kind of open you up and see Ex- what happens. That seems crazy to me. Crazy. Exploratory. Crazy. We don't know, but let's it, just it could be cut assist, you open. It could be this, but we want you're in a lot of pain. We want to get you in. And I remember at 14 sitting there and saying, okay, let's go. Now, this is a kid who never had a blood test in my life. I mean, there were no needles, no nothing. I mean, I was, I was a kid. Was your, were your parents there they with you? They were there. They were there. They, they were trusting okay. me at that point. I mean, it was, it was intense, intense pain. So I um, ended up going into surgery. My parents thought it was going to be a couple hours because they thought it was either a cyst or something related to the event. They couldn't fully tell. Um, and it ended up that I had a tear in my intestine and they had to remove. So they were about, I think it was like about eight to 10 feet of small and long intestine oh that gosh. they had to remove. And it was major, major surgery. I remember my mom always tells the story like she was there two hours. All of a sudden it was six hours. All of a sudden, just waiting, waiting, waiting. She must have um, been. Yeah. Can you, as a mother, uh, right? I cannot. When I think of the story now as oh. a mom, I just really shudder. Um, but so it... Uh, ended up being that if I had waited, I actually would have died. For from, that CT, from, that four yes, hours. if I had waited four more hours. It was emergency, wow. emergency surgery. And so what that Hoshimo would be <laughs> was like, you know, when it matters, the person that you have to trust is yourself. And you have the answers within you. For me, especially 
with parents who are not risk takers, I was, you know, pretty, I, I had never had any kind of surgery or anything like it, never a medical complication in my yeah. life, never an allergy, never a bee sting. Um, to make that choice was kind of crazy, but my body knew. And so I always like to say <laughs> that was the first experience of trust your gut because it was trust my literal gut. <laughs> Literally. My literal gut uh, I had to trust. And so, yeah, that was the first, my first encounter with understanding that you have to be able to depend on yourself. Oh, I, well, okay. So I want to skip forward because I want to, I want to get as much as I can because you've got such, your track has been so unusual and as yeah. a self-starting co-founding of a big company you fast forward now so through school I'm going to move you to like you were already working in the working world so how did you so this sort of now you've got this bug and how did marketing become a bug for you where did that so I knew in school I wanted to be a marketer and I started on a pretty traditional marketing track Um, until somebody who I had had an internship with at Disney came back to me and said, you know, you'd be really great in sales. Mm. And I was terrified to try sales, especially because with sales, you really control your own income for better or worse. If you don't, it's, you can't hide in sales. You either make the numbers or you don't. Um, And if you make them, you can be compensated really well. And if you don't, you don't have a job. Right. So I tried. Uh, I took the risk to do that because I thought I might be okay at it. Uh, And I ended up being really good at it and start that started a career in media sales and then I didn't leave that until I launched my company with Dave. So how long how long was that that you were doing that? How long sales? was I in sales? Yeah. I was in sales for about 5 years. Oh my I went god. Up to sales manager. Yeah, it was great. So it you was did, great. but 5 years and then you were like I got this, I'm moving on. What what was the impetus to then leave and do your own? Well, thing? my husband and I had been dating. We had worked together. We were in sales and we competed against each other actually. Fun. He was yeah, he was the number one salesperson in the country at Radio Disney and then I dropped him Until to number two. Until you got mm-hmm. there. That's mm-hmm. right, you go girl. Yeah, so that was that was always a fun part of our story. But um when we wanted to get married, he wanted a large wedding, like really, really large, larger than life. And I had already been married and divorced. I had a starter marriage, failed miserably in two years, big wedding, short-lived marriage. So I knew there was no way I wasn't going to ask my parents to pay for a second wedding. And I wasn't going to be able to afford the type of wedding my husband wanted. Mm-hmm. So we had to get really smart. And so we came up with an idea to get married on a baseball field. <laughs> uh, and, and we went to a minor league park. We pitched them. We said, we're going to call the night our field of dreams. We're going to sell in sponsors to your game instead of like Pepsi tossing T-shirts in the audience. <laughs> 1-800-Flowers will toss bridal bouquets. It'll be amazing. <laughs> we'll get married on the field afterwards. We'll raise money for charity. And this was another like real Hoshima where we were like, oh my gosh, we could really do this. Um, we did. This was while I was now leading a media sales team. And we got these sponsors all of this press. So it was a huge success, both because we were able to raise $100,000 for the wedding of our dreams, raise $25,000 for charity, and got all of this press. Oh, my gosh. And so all of the clients, all the, the sponsors came to us and were like, we would bet on you guys. Like, you did. This is a cost-effective, amazing promotion. So we came up with the idea to start a word-of-mouth agency, but I still wasn't ready to leave um, because it's a big risk to start when you start your own company. Mm. Um, it was only when I really took the chance to leave was when I was commuting out to that media sales management job, and I had my daughter at the time, and I was dropping her at daycare, and she looked at me, and she was like, don't go. And I just felt like, okay, um, I won't. Like something came over me that gave me the confidence. It wasn't even this huge event that I had that was so successful. It was that the discovery that I really just wanted my own freedom to choose my time, how I spent my time. 
you know, so when you this this three year old and yes. I look, I know you've children. Yes. I have two boys. Yes. I, and I was a working mom yes. like you, yes. and I definitely had those moments where the kids were crying and yep. you drop them at daycare, yep. and luckily then my husband yes. decided to stay at home, which was great. But I remember those tugging moments, But and I have to imagine that this wasn't the first time she was like, Mommy, don't. Yeah. What, what was it about? And, and I know it wasn't anything grand. There wasn't, you know, like lightning yep. and stars, but yep. what... What was it about that? Was there must have been something else going on with you? Is a common is my thinking yes. that made this like yes. This is what I have to. It do. wasn't. It wasn't such a mom guilt moment. Like when I tell the story, people always say yeah. like, "Oh, you wanted to be a stay at home mom. That's amazing. Look at this fairy tale story." It wasn't that. It was that what I realized was that when I worked for somebody else, I my time mm. was controlled by somebody else, yeah. and I wanted to own my time, and that was the thing as an entrepreneur that has stuck with me for the rest of my life was that I wanted to own how I spent my time. And it wasn't that I didn't want to work. It was that I wanted to work on my own terms. And I wanted to be able to take her somewhere when I wanted to. I didn't want to have to drop her off for early AM. I wanted to drop her off at this time. Or I wanted to be able to do something, go to her recital or whatever it was. And I I wanted the freedom of of time. And that, that was a big hoshimo for me. Oh, uh, and so how so you made this so you made this decision sort of on the spot on the fly like, like a nut. Okay. Yep. Like I'm walked in is... and gave notice in a in a minute. Like really? That's gave not- You know why though? Because the thing with the wedding was I knew people were willing to take a chance on us. I wasn't willing to take a chance on myself until I had that light bulb moment. So you were holding yourself back. I was holding myself back. And then once I once I removed that layer, mm-hmm. once I had that realization that it was actually me that was holding myself back, and once I nailed the desire, which was the desire was I want to control my career and my time. It, once I had that, it was it was limitless. And so did you do this with Dave or did you call Dave and I, like, hey, I guess what Dave. I just did? <laughs> so so here's the thing. At the time, Dave had become a teacher. He had gone back he was had an education degree and he's had many different careers. And he he wanted to at the time he wanted a, a job that felt really stable and secure and um, something that was a passion for him. Mm-hmm. So he went back to to teach. And so I called him, so I made a lot more money than he did at that time. As a, as a middle school teacher, he wasn't making a ton. And I sure. called him, and I was like, do you think that we're crazy if I do this? And he, who is the biggest risk taker of all time, was like, no, of course not. This is what we want. <laughs> this is great. And um, so I started, and I just started consulting. And then summer hit, and he was like, you know, I think we could scale this. You know, it started getting real, like, we could make this huge. And I was like, okay, go get us three more clients, and then you can leave, too, because we'll be able to afford health insurance. Because basically, the teaching oh was my... for the benefits. Sure. And so uh, he did. And then there we go. And then and you... that was it. And, and likable that, media that, was that's born? That's likable media was born. And like, Okay. So. And so I have to ask, ask this question, yes. because I know all about likable yes. media. I know what you do. Yes. You know, I, I know the guts of that. Yes. But now, hearing your story, do you... Have you set up the working environment in at Likeable to be that which you were seeking well, when you made this choice? Yes, because it was my exact motivation for starting a company. I kind of was setting you to, up too because yeah. I didn't know the answer. So yes, this is... I mean, that's, I think that's why we win best places to work in these things because I'm so focused on giving people control over their time. So 
It's very interesting. We do things like we have unlimited PTO, but we also have minimum PTO because unlimited PTO can really be a farce because what it does is discourage people. Like if you don't have parameters, you feel guilty taking it. So we have a minimum, you know, you have to take at least this much time off and then you have unlimited. We have a variety of different benefits and things that we do to make sure that people have their time. Great work from home policies and all of that. And that was something that was very, very important to me early in my tenure. uh, Actually, when I took over from Dave, so Dave was the CEO for several years. Then we launched another company and I took over and I, I was struggling to find a vision for the company because I was so focused on creating a work environment that was incredible. Like where the company would go felt secondary to me to where, how the employees would feel. And that was something I had to learn to balance over time. Like I had to, because I was more of an operator and more focused on the people. Yeah. And and so, you know, obviously you've got, you've got quite a few of these Hoshimos in your life, but this one is obviously driven decisions for your career and and your family because the, your career was informed because of your family yes. and then this career that you've chosen, you've embedded that family consciousness. It's all linked. And so I have to imagine that I'm now I'm going to move over to your book and some of, you know, your I, I would love for you to talk about what you're doing and both the really tell people what you're doing, but what the why is. I'm very curious as to where the bug then came on, you For know, like women in business and the book. Yeah, the whole obviously you're inspired because it's not just the one book and this isn't just a plug right. for your book because you you do you know i i follow your videos you're yes. you're interviewing the most amazing women yes. and you're doing it to give them a platform you're yes. not selling your agency capabilities in those it, it's not it's at all literally just spotlighting these amazing women yes it, it definitely benefits me as much as or uh, more than in some cases than it benefits them it's it's what happened was we started an agency in 2007 around social media. At the time, nobody was doing that. Right. So we grew. And that at that time, we grew. Right. When was Facebook? When Facebook did Facebook opened beyond the college market in 2007. So we were right there. We were with them. So we started growing and growing and growing, and it was fast. And then we started to flatline. You know, you'd grow just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And then Dave launched a second company. We decided we wanted to launch a software startup. And so we launched that and I became CEO. Now, in 2013, when I took over, it was a very different world and uh, much more crowded landscape. Most of the leaders were male thought leaders who were on social media all the time. And this is not how I felt about myself. And so at that time, what I decided to do was start an interview series and talk to other women in my industry. And I thought that would help me build my network. It would help me add value for them by telling their stories. Um, and it would it would really ultimately, I felt, lead to business without selling. It, it meant, I know you, you know mm-hmm. so-and-so, let me introduce you. Right. Just creating a, a large network and being able, being able to tell the stories of women. And what happened was, it did work. Mm-hmm. I doubled the size of the business, but I also um, just fell in love with the stories of women. And I fell in love with the fact that two women could end up in the same place with totally different philosophies Mm -hmm. of how to get there. So there's no one right answer. And so I wanted to highlight as many different stories as possible. And that became a passion project. And then what I did was take that passion project and produce it 
using the agency. So if I say like, oh, I produced this show. So I wrote the book and then I produced a show that airs on Facebook Watch. Well, we produce shows that air on Facebook Watch all the time Mm -hmm. for the agency. So it's a good case study and example of what we do and also taps into a passion project and builds the network. So um, another like springing questions on you out of nowhere. So as you've done this now, I have two questions. So first, when you got started, how did you decide on your subjects? Like, how did you say, I'm going to reach out and try to get this person? So first, um, I went really niche. So I said, okay, the podcast is called All the Social Ladies, and I'm going to interview social media managers and directors. Um, So because I knew at that time I didn't yet have a credibility to interview a C-level executive or anything like that. I wasn't yet there. Although I will say that in this world, everyone is accessible. And once you get over that fear, um, you really can reach out to anyone. So, But I started by interviewing social media managers and directors, which was very targeted for the podcast that I did. Yeah. Which was great because we did social media at Likeable. So it all worked. Then I started writing for Forbes and I asked them if I could do an interview series with video because I liked video and thought I was good at it. They agreed. I started doing that. That's where we met. Yeah. I started broadening my base of who I interviewed. Um, And then I was approached to write the book. And at first I was like, you know, this is not really on focus for me because it doesn't directly link to the agency. Um, But then I realized that sometimes things don't have to directly link as long as you're passionate about them and you feel that it's time well spent. Right. And so from that, I was able, when I wrote the book, I I just started, by that point I had credibility, I reached out to everyone. Yeah. So I had, you know, Cheryl Sandberg and Barbara Corcoran and a yeah. lot of these incredible women. Oh, no. This, and yeah. this was, so this is. This and you, is, of course. Oh, right. I'm, I was certainly I was, the highlight yes. of your, yeah, you of are, Your story is amazing, though. So it is a very <laughs> good story. Uh, well, thank you. But you're, so what, that aside, what is the most, what story, I don't want to say like what's the most interesting, what's the big, which story has had the greatest personal impact on you? It's a simple story, actually. It's from somebody who used to work for me, who was then heading up marketing at ClassPass, which is the startup for um, workout boutique workouts. Okay. Okay. So you subscribe to ClassPass, you can go work out right. at any of the the boutique shops. Okay. So she talked about when she was negotiating and when she was first learning um, how to command a higher dollar, a higher position, about using the mental mute button. And which means that you, if you were on the phone with somebody and you say, well, this is the salary I require, or this is what I'm looking for, you could actually put them on mute. But when you're looking across from somebody, don't underestimate the power of silence and actually feel yourself putting yourself on mute. Oh my God. And it's such a small tip. It's my favorite story in the whole book. It's just, and she talks about how she did it to negotiate for a job, uh, but I use it all the time. I use it in, in, um, supervisions with with people who work for me and I say and what do you think we should do in that situation and I'm like mental mute and then, or I do I use it with clients I use it all over the, oh. the power of silence and just by calling it a mental mute button it allowed me to like visualize turning a switch I think it's so funny that you say that so first of all my best friend in the world Zane Fandozi she's I will get her on here and you she's a CEO to. she's fabulous yes very early, you know, we worked together in auto, and this isn't about me, but she had a similar piece of advice yeah. that has stuck with me forever when negotiating if you're for yourself. Yes. If you're not putting out a number that makes you physically yes. nauseous. Ill, yes. Like physically, yes. she says, like yes. physically nauseous, yes. it's not big enough. Yes. And it's a little like that mental mute because it is. I think it's, I think it's certainly women, but it's not just women. Yep. 
is that we want to justify and, you know, we want to fill the silence of the room. We do. And it's the it's the worry that you're not worth that amount that makes you talk more. Yeah. To make excuses. So like if so I would combine those two. Say the number that makes you want to vomit and then mental mute yourself. And then, and then just I would like a gazillion dollars. Silence. <laughs> right. That pause there, right? We it's, mental muted. It's amazing. Yep. That is so funny. I yep. it's funny, I, I teach my son the same thing yes. when he's in not only because he's in high school, he's a yes. senior, he's my baby, but he's had personal friend conflicts. Yes. And my point to him is say what you want to say and then let there be a right. pause. Right. Because I think it's just human nature to want to comfort, create a comfort and try, by just rambling. Also, what has damaged that and has, the reason that has to be taught so much with kids today is because of the texting and messaging. You uh. just can't stop. Yeah, it's like it's like diary of the mouth via text. They just, you know, it's like they everything they feel they text, and then it's like, no, actually, don't say that. And then there's a written record of it. Bye. You don't want that. Yes, I have. I have a junior, so I'm right yeah. there with you. Don't post yeah. anything. Stop it. Post right. nothing. Yeah. Stop talking. Which is the height of irony for yep. a woman who runs a social media. Don't agency. even get me started. I do a whole. Um, I do like a. I work with uh, the Family Online Safety Institute for parenting in a digital age, and I do all of that stuff. That's basically to relieve my guilt of all of the social media of the children in the world. And I mean, it's different. You know, working on brand stuff is a little different, but it is. It's challenging. It's definitely challenging when you see the impact. I don't think anyone could have imagined the impact that social media has had uh, today. As yeah. If we looked back in 2007 when we were starting, it's. It's wild. It's crazy. Wild. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, you have been fabulous. I I knew this was going to be God. super fun. Um, and your story is so inspiring. So thank you. Well, thank you, Julie, for having me. It was a pleasure. My, my it was pleasure. A pleasure. I love Hoshimo. I'm going to use you it like all it? the time. I'm going to tell my staff. Hashtag Hoshimo. I'm going to Hoshimo it. I think yep. we're going to have to make t-shirts. We do. So. We do. You need Hoshimo t-shirts. Well, you're the expert, so you yes. need to help oh, me. Oh, please. We need to, yes. We have to write about Hoshimo. Okay. For sure. All right. For sure. Okay. Thanks so much. Of course. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.